Hello, listeners. This is David Blakesley coming back at you with another episode of the Criterion Reflections podcast. This is episode 132, in which we are going to talk about Eric Romer's Love in the Afternoon, the sixth of the six moral tales in that uh, magnificent Criterion Collection box set that was uh, first issued in 2006 in a beautiful DVD uh, slipcase edition and then went out of print for a few years and came back um, maybe a couple years ago now. It's uh, kind of the years blend together, but it's back in print in Blu-ray. Uh, and it's been available on the Criterion channel pretty much ever since that service started. But uh, I'm really eager to uh, complete the series here and finish out this set. And I've got a great guest along here tonight to help me uh, process this little gem that Eric Romer dropped on us back in 1972. Matt Gasteyer, welcome back to the show, Matt. Thank you for having me back. It's been a while, David, but um, not not a while for us talking. But, <laughs> That's um, right. But on your show, wow, 132, is that what you said? That is, well, episode That's 132. A lot of episodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so that's right. We did record recently, uh, as you are getting into the uh, complete, was it season four, is that correct? Yes, uh, or is it? No, it's five, season is it five? five. Yeah, okay. yeah. We've done two mini ep- uh, seasons and then a, a, um, you know, a couple of longer ones. And yeah, now we're, sh- we're diving into Anya Sparta. Yes. So yes. Um, we put up our first episode, but we have a couple in the can, including uh, a discussion with you about uh, Les Creatures, which, yeah. is, uh, which was yeah. a really fun conversation. It was a good. It was odd movie. <laughs> very odd and uh, very underseen. And maybe there's reasons for that, but it was definitely a great discovery for me. I mean, a lot of us are familiar with some of the films that Agnes Varda did around the creatures. Sure. Um, but uh, this one here was a little bit of an experiment for her, and uh, she kind of maybe decided uh, to learn from that experience that there are some other directions she wanted to take her talents, and, uh, you know, we're all better off for it. But I really did enjoy that conversation. I did enjoy the film, too, so I look forward to uh, whenever you get around to publishing that and rem- remembering what it was I had to say about that movie. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's always but, the nice thing about these. You can go back and say, well, yeah, that's right. That's how I thought of that movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, and this is also kind of a continuation of a series that uh, you and I have had as we've kind of worked our way through the last half of the moral tales. Uh, this this podcast started as we were getting into the time of My Night at Mods, which I think was a 69 film. Uh, you were part of that conversation, and then uh, we discussed Claire's Knee a couple of years ago from 1971, I believe that was. Is that correct? Am I right on my years? Or is it season two or season three? But Yeah, I yeah. think it's 71. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so this was his follow-up, uh, filmed and released in 1972, uh, a series that began uh, in 1963. So in addition to adapting stories that uh, Eric Romer had um, kind of written out in kind of a novelistic form, uh, again, one of the really nice features of that box set is that you get the the English translation of, uh, of his text so that you can read the original you know, script, so to speak, and then see the cinematic vision, is that you're also getting a chronicle of uh, changing times, you know, from 1963 to 1972. A lot of stuff was happening in culture. And these are little snapshots of kind of the evolution of uh, French bourgeois society. (laughs) And uh, so it is definitely a very interesting uh, journey. I I did take, take the time to I didn't get to, to watch all uh, five of the previous moral tales, but at least sampled them and uh, did have a chance to listen to part of the Claire's Knee podcast as well, just to kind of refresh myself on that film and the conversation we had so we can kind of pick it up from there. But uh, Matt, why don't you tell me just a little bit about your relationship or your uh, history with the six moral tales and uh, we'll get the conversation going. Sure. Yeah. Um, it's uh, it's, apt that um that we just discussed Anya Sparta because um when people ask me you know who I like from the from the French New Wave they're not technically in the the uh Varda isn't technically in the Kaye crowd but um it's basically Varda and Romer all the way for me so um I was first exposed to these films. I think I had seen My Night at Mods pretty young, and I, I saw a couple of his movies sort of contemporaneously when they were released. The um, the last two of the um, of the Four Seasons um, series that he made in the '90s, I saw in theaters, um, 
and I, I definitely enjoyed them, but those movies and in particular, uh, the last one, a tale of autumn are films for people in their middle age mm-hmm. <laughs> very much. And, um, so I, I, you know, enjoyed it, but I, I didn't fully, I think, um, it didn't hit me the way it did later on when I watched it. Um, these movies, I think, well, with the except, possible exception of the one that we're going to discuss tonight, um, are very much for uh, young people and dealing with issues of, of young people. Um, so when I first encountered the the series as a whole, um, I was I was pretty taken with it. Um, I will say that now that I've kind of watched all of Romer's films, I've seen all of them at this point. Mm. Uh, I watched them chronologically. There's a beautiful French box that collects all of his films and includes English subs on the, on the main features. Um, I think I have a more complicated relationship with them, even though I still probably would consider my night at mods to be his best film. And I love almost all of all of the six moral tales um the depiction of the men in the films are (laughs) it's pretty um difficult um but i i think it really um speaks to uh the artist that he became in his later career um because there are these sort of moments of the reality and the inner lives of the women that are depicted in the film sort of cracking through mm-hmm. the first person, almost first person narrative perspective of the films. And I find those aspects of them, especially fascinating. And I think probably more interesting than the, you know, male protagonists at the center of the films, which, mm. you know, certainly I relate to at times, depending on the character, I think probably, Adrian and Collectionus is probably the least, the least uh, character I relate to least just because I, yeah, I think he's pretty much an unrelentingly awful person. <laughs> but yeah. I, but the, I think, you know, for the most part, the other characters, you know, they're self-absorbed. They're uh, <laughs> um, definitely naive in their sort of intellectual way. Um, but there are certainly moments uh and maybe not my proudest moments where I identify myself, uh, in their, in their actions and thoughts. I do find, you know, to your point about how, how much had changed, um, when he was writing the book or it wasn't really a book. It was just a series of shorts that he was initially intending to eventually film. Um, it's pretty incredible that, that how little he changed, uh, mm-hmm. from those stories um, and and that they still kind of not only held up but I think spoke even more to the tenor of the of the time when they were made uh, the late 60s early 70s um, and I, I think again that kind of speaks to one of the things that I love the most about Romero which is his specificity in mise-en-scene and costumes and even, you know, plot points and specific, um, themes, uh, is, is so of its time. And I think speaks so, uh, beautifully to what, uh, was going on in French society at that time. And yet his, his deeper themes and his characters are so universal and immediately recognizable to anybody in any time. Um, I think that's ultimately, uh, what I find sort of endlessly rewarding about his work is that I, I, you know, whether I'm watching it in 1995 or 2005 or, or 2023, I'm gaining, I'm getting something new out of it simply mm. by being an old, uh, you know, older person. Uh, I'd like to think a wiser person, but I think it's probably <laughs> just a more yeah. tired person. <laughs> um, yeah. And, 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 you know, that, and ultimately that even, the experience that I've had, the, the, the social dynamics that have evolved in society, that he can still speak to those things uh, so eloquently, I think it's just incredibly impressive. Yeah, it is. It's it's a, kind of a brilliant achievement that, you know, he's not self-consciously trying to construct these you know, archetypal characters, you know, with this kind of uh, every man, anytime. Uh, they are 
very specific to their time and place. And they do capture different sort of slices of French society, just different strata within the kind of the social hierarchy, but, you know, generally of the upper middle class, not, not, you know, talking about the bourgeoisie. I mean, I just did the Luis Manuel's discreet charm of the bourgeoisie. Yeah. Those are kind of the, you know, semi-aristocratic. Those are people with, with real old money and, and all the trappings of a pretty luxurious lifestyle that kind of veers off into decadence. These are more working class people, but still people with some, some degree of affluence uh, and privilege and comforts in life. So, you know, they have jobs, but they're not the kind of jobs that kind of grind them down. Uh, they allow a lot of freedom and a lot of room for, uh, you know, leisure time to pursue these little fanciful uh, relationships, whether they're kind of the student type in the early films like uh, the, the Bakery Girl of Monceau or Suzanne's Career or, you know, like this fellow here, uh, Frederick in Love in the Afternoon, who's a bit more of a mature man. Uh, an entrepreneur, a small business owner. Uh, of course, he's in Paris, so uh, you know he is, you know, also somewhat affluent, but not showing, you know, in a gaudy way, you know, the 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 wealth and the prestige that perhaps he's been able to achieve in his life. Um, but yeah, so these are characters that are very relatable uh, to anybody who's maybe lived a little bit here, and and I feel like yeah, this is definitely a character that I could see echoes of some of my own experiences and I'm a man who's been married for 30 plus years. I've had uh, jobs and other situations in life where I've worked around attractive women and I understand some of the thought processes that that he goes through. Uh, hopefully I've been able to refrain from some of the more egregious uh, <laughs> offensive behaviors that are on display here but I certainly and in just an all candor understand a lot of what motivates him and drives his choices, both those that are perhaps seen as admirable um, in the, the long run, as well as some of those that are a little bit, you know, uh, morally questionable and, uh, you know, maybe just not, not his, his brightest shining moments or, or my <laughs> own <laughs> for that matter. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah. It, it's, it's, uh, it's a very fascinating portrayal. Go ahead and uh, pick oh, it up. Oh, well, I was yeah. just going to say, I, you know, I think, uh, this is a weird comparison, but I think as you were speaking, it reminded me of what I ultimately think was the most successful component of uh, Seinfeld was that <laughs> okay. um, there, uh, the, the individual moments from uh, each of the main characters in Seinfeld were uh, extremely relatable. Mm -hmm. And in those instances, you could see yourself acting in the same way right. as those characters. It was only in the summation of the fact that they did, they, you know, they were, they put placed themselves in those moments and had those responses over and over again. And it was all that we saw from them that they became these just terrible people. <laughs> and it was only that delicate balance between, you know, like this is the worst of everybody that mm -hmm. we're seeing on display. And yet, like, it is still a part of everybody that we're mm -hmm. seeing that made that show so successful, I think. And here, I feel like, um, you know, th if you isolate each one of his moments, there is this sense, you know, I, I agree, in, in all candor, you have to say, like, occasionally, you're thinking, oh, like, this is a very attractive woman, I enjoy mm -hmm. spending time around her. Um, right. The little flirtations, just yeah. the smiles, the hanging out, the occasional bumping into each other or right. just but whatever, it, you know, right. But just, as it builds up mm -hmm. in the movie, it's just, it becomes <laughs> so much, I mean, especially in the prologue section, it's just, he, it, you know, it's, it snowballs to such a degree that it becomes, you know, uh, I think intentionally ridiculous, um, yeah. you know, to the degree that he, uh, that he has those responses. And there's a little bit of that in each one of these stories, I think. Sure. Um, you know, they're, they're, we're, we're so in these people's heads and there is, um, there's sort of no relief from that insularity. And I think it, it makes all of them come off uh, worse than they probably would seem if we met them on the street. Uh, right. Because you know, we are know, in real life. Yeah, we're we're in their innermost thoughts, and uh, Romer's um, 
device of using this first person narration uh, for the male protagonist. And pretty much, I think all of these films have pretty significant segments where it's the the man that we're kind of focused on, the central character of the film, who's sharing his innermost thoughts. And and what's interesting about all those characters that they're all what you pretty much would say are smart guys, you know, insightful, intellectual, uh, you know, somewhat sophisticated. Um, but that sophistication and the ability to rationalize their various behaviors and impulses results in these massive blind spots. They, they don't really understand how foolish or ridiculous they look to people who can sort of see through the facade. They're, they're kind of buying into their own bullshit is <laughs> kind of what's happening here. And, and, totally. and, and Romer is, is capturing that thought process that, uh, you know, in these films, it's, it's the men who are kind of spinning their tail and thinking that they're convincing you, uh, the listener, whoever that may be, uh, as they relate their 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 thoughts and their rationalizations, that this is a persuasive argument that you will sort of see it from their perspective. When really they are, like I say, sort of spinning their own web that convinces them that they're they're kind of they're still in the safe zone. They're still making uh, the wise and prudent decisions. And, and I think that's just such a fascinating, um, uh, you know, kind of artistic uh, finesse that, that Romer brings to these stories because he's not, he's not showing men behaving badly. He's not, you know, right. these are not exaggerated, obnoxious characters acting out the worst impulses that most of us, most of the time successfully kind of stamp down and we stay <laughs> within our lane and keep ourselves out of trouble. And of course, we also know that there's a lot of people who do go way outside of those lines and do make a disaster of their lives and their relationships but that's not the kind of people that he's really concerned with here. And that's not really the audience that he's making these movies for either. And so it is a very interesting sort of encounter that he's making in these films with audiences who probably bring a similar level of insight and sophistication and, and worldly wisdom and experience into our own viewing of these characters and picturing ourselves uh, one way or another within these relationships. And I do wonder, you know, I'm not a woman, I'm not really, you know, able to fully see it from their perspective, but I do wonder how uh, women view these films. I mean, I've watched some of them with my wife and she gets a little exasperated with these characters because these men really ultimately are scoundrels and she sees exactly right through (laughs) it and doesn't really have much much patience. But that's that's her taste. But I'm sure there are women who do find these films amusing and intriguing and enjoyable. So yeah, but that's just a little bit of my thought on the identification with these protagonists, uh, that, that, uh, uh, he, he's, he's presenting to us. It's always so hard to, to talk to you about movies, David. I have like five things I want to respond to. In there. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, the one. first, the first thing I want to say is just, um, you know, I think when, when these films were first released, um, by Criterion, uh, I think this was this was the first Wacky C, right? Yes, released, this was right? the debut yeah. of their, their you know, new logo. This was, and all this that, was yeah. sort of held up as the pinnacle of Romare's career, mm-hmm. and um, you know he made movies after that, of course. But like yeah. these were the you know his masterworks essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think since then, uh, the the reputation of comedies and proverbs in particular, I think, has grown. And ultimately, I think, especially when you look at younger, younger people and women specifically, Mm -hmm. um, but then also like the Tumblr crowd, the letterboxed crowd, um, those films have, I think, surpassed these in terms of, you know, sort of praise and, Mm -hmm. and, um, esteem. And I, I kind of lean towards that opinion. I, I think in terms of consistency, the comedies and proverbs are stronger, but I also think it's fascinating because those movies, not all of them, but I think, you know, most of them are from a female perspective. Mm. And I think the women mm. in those films are much more three-dimensional and fascinating. Um, they're also a whole lot more 
likable, even in their flawed characterizations okay. than yeah. any of the men here. And the men in, in those movies with, you know, a lot of certain exceptions of, of pure scoundrels uh, in films like Pauline <laughs> at the beach are, okay. are, um, are more likable than, than these men here. Um, and so, yeah, I think there is definitely a sense that uh, it's, I think it's very easy to watch these movies and come away feeling like there's a lot of misogyny at play mm-hmm. um, that I think is very easy to discount with a closer viewing of the films but it takes it takes effort to get there because you have to set you have to sit with these characters um in order to do that and that's not easy for everybody and i totally understand that i mean especially if you go in order i think the first two shorts are are pretty they're pretty terrible the way that they treat the women (laughs) i mean especially suzanne's career i think is pretty pretty brutal um but then by, by the time you get to Collection Use, where I think for me, I, I it's hard to name a, another film that seem that is almost exclusively from one character's perspective, but so clearly has a, an enormous amount of contempt for that character mm-hmm. that, um, you know, it's it, it kind of keys you into the rest of the series, I think, because you you start to see the, the reality poking through their their delusion. Um, the other, the other thing, uh, you mentioned is, is, you know, who, who they're talking to, which I think is a really interesting question. Um, I'm reading David Bordwell's book on, uh, uh, Hollywood in the 1940s right now. And he Mm. talks a little bit about narration because narration was so prevalent in Hollywood in the forties that critics would comment on it. They would say, Oh, another movie with narration again, or another movie Mm. with flashbacks, um, and he kind of asks, like, well, who are they talking to? Who who are these voices speaking to? And I think it's an interesting question to ask anytime there's narration, anytime they're breaking the fourth wall. Are they talking directly to the viewer? Are they talking to maybe it's a flashback? They're talking to somebody else who's actually in the movie. I think here they're talking to themselves. Mm-hmm. I think they're trying to convince themselves of this reality that they've constructed and this sort of self-perception that they've constructed and the, the, you know, they're, they're trying to convince themselves that they are good moral people and that they have a certain code and that they stick to it. And um, I think that's often when we seem our most ridiculous and these people certainly seem ridiculous, Uh, you know, even in, I think probably mods is where it's sort of the least the, the 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 least despicable of the of the main characters right <laughs> um he still you know frequently seem it seems ridiculous and is certainly made a fool of uh quite frequently by maud um so yeah i mean I, I think it's fascinating to watch his films that way because there is that sense of okay there's a plot going on on the surface here but what's actually going on underneath that plot that we're seeing that we're you know, being shown, but aren't necessarily being told. Um, and I, I think that's one of the most impressive components of these films. Well, let's get into a little bit of that plot just to kind of, I mean, we've been kind of advanced into our, our analysis and kind of dissecting of the film, but maybe a, a little summary of what goes on here, just for the sake of listeners who might tune in and need a little bit of a refresher. So we've got uh, Frederick, uh, he's the businessman that we've talked about this uh, I wouldn't say even middle-aged guy, but he's, he is a little bit older, a little bit more settled. I mean, he's got a child uh, already, a couple years old. They presumably have been married for a few years. And there's another one on the way. He does have his business up and running. He's got a partner. He's in a fairly, I don't I don't know the arrondissements of Paris all that well, but it seems like he's in a pretty fashionable district. So, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's well-to-do. Uh, but he is at this place in life where, having settled into the marriage to a, you know, he's, she's a pretty woman, um, but you know, he's he's a bit, I would say, restless in the, in the sense that he's kind of now come of age, and he's recognizing that you know there's a larger field out there, and, and uh, the the novelty of 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 a new relationship or at least new faces, new women to interact with has a certain appeal 
uh, it's not quite strong enough for him to to throw overboard the uh, you know the accretions of middle class success and and stability that he's become comfortable with. And so he's in this complex process of persuading himself that he is content and happy in his marriage, but that a little flirtatious fun on the side is is all sort of a fitting uh, little treat or an indulgence that uh, that he's entitled to uh, because of his station in life, you know, and that there's nothing really harmful or wrong. He will keep his vows. He will stay you know, chaste within the marriage relationship. Uh, but, you know, he, he hires pretty secretaries to work in his offices. He has little daydreams and little uh, notions of the women that he uh, sees walking around or, or sitting in cafes around uh, his office there. And that's where this kind of love in the afternoon concept sort of establishes itself. Um, again, harmless dalliances and, and little mental flights of fancy until suddenly one day an, an old friend, not even a former girlfriend, but uh, a girlfriend of one of his former best friends that he's kind of fallen out of touch with named Chloe, sort of just pops into his office one day and, uh, you know, just starts kind of hanging out, has a desire to just sort of be around. And, uh, you know, that's one of the other things I was thinking, even as I was making my little comment about the interiority of the male protagonist. What if this was a film shot from Chloe's perspective and we got her voiceover narration explaining her motives and her angles? Uh, she might turn out to be a much less sympathetic character if we were to be privy to some of her inner workings to rationalize um, her choices and, and, and her priorities. But in this film, she is a very, I'd say, a very appealing character just because of her candor, her freshness, um, uh, her her uncompromising aspect of, uh, you know, living a life that she's charted for herself and not settling for the conventional, the normal, the bland, and the bourgeois. <laughs> so, Ivan, mean, what do you think about uh, the, the, the uh, you know, the, the, the establishing of these two characters and, and how Chloe just kind of... Uh, sort of is a bit of an eruption into his, into this placid routine that he's established for himself. And he finds himself sort of powerless to control to the extent that he thinks of himself as a guy who's kind of calling the shots and, and uh, making the big decisions in his life. You know, the, the ego stroking that uh, he provides to himself to, to, to justify the, these, these decisions and, and choices that he makes. You know, it's funny that you um, asked about, uh, you know, what this movie would be like uh, from her perspective. I, I was reading back on what I had written uh, on these films when I first watched them. And uh, at the end, when I was sort of summing up my take on the films overall, I, I thought to myself how fascinating it would have been if, Romare had gone back to these stories and remade them from mm. the female perspective. Um, I think it would have been a uh, really uh, rich and rewarding exercise uh, because there's so much there. Um, and I think generally speaking, you know, the, because he is so tightly focused on the perspective of the men, the women in these movies are, are real mysteries, you know, mm -hmm. And there's a lot in Chloe that we don't know. And mm -hmm. she could be a very kind of positive representation of, uh, you know, the, uh, a, the new woman this, uh, sec after post-sexual revolution, doing what she wants, uh, enjoying life. She could also be seen quite easily as very sad and potentially uh, you know, sort of not well. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, uh, it would be very easy to, to sort of, you know, tilt the, the crystal that he's looking that he's gazing at her through and, and see a very dark story mm -hmm. of, a you know, woman desperately kind of calling for help. And he's meanwhile living in his, uh, daydream existence. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think it, it's a fascinating um, dynamic, uh, while at the same time, their conversations are consistently enjoyable to listen to. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think they're talking about really right. interesting 
subjects, big subjects, and they're being honest with each other, um, or at least as honest as, as they can be in their sort of dance of, of flirtation. Um, and I, th- I think, you know, that's, again, like one of Romare's strengths is to be able to, to bring sort of characterizations to people and scenes, while at the same time, what they're actually talking about on the surface isn't just sort of fluff that is intended to speak to those characterizations and themes. It's actually really interesting philosophical discussions. Right. The, yeah. The, the freedom that they have to just really kind of get down to it, you know, and, and have this really mature, um, insightful and candid dialogue with each other. Uh, Frederick is very clearly unable to have these types of conversations with his wife. You know, uh, he, he not acknowledges that and, and the freedom that they both have. I mean, and Chloe herself seems to have a genuine rapport with Frederick that she hasn't been able to establish with too many other men, or at least she certainly gives Frederick that message. I, I love having somebody to talk to, you know, like, uh, you know, she, she's probably been objectified. She's probably been in more manipulative or, or, uh, exploitive types of relationships. Uh, that's sort of the impression that you get. And, and, you know, and for people who maybe buy into, uh, the, the male privilege or the, the chauvinistic idea that the, the, the father or the husband should be protected from these uh, temptress type of women. Uh, Chloe could be seen as a very destructive or even predatory type of character because she just won't leave poor Frederick alone. You know, she's luring <laughs> him into, into, into her trap because she wants to have his baby and run away and never give him the, the, uh, the satisfaction of knowing this child that he may may have brought into the world if she's able to complete her seduction. So right, right there's Except all these different cruelly, facets. Cruelly disappears for weeks <laughs> at a well, time. Well, yes, and and, uh, and there's Frederick <laughs> having his little pity party because after he's just kind of dismissed her and left her dangling, he's expecting her to sort of come crawling right. back, and now he's kind of ticked off at her because she she really has just kind of gone off and done her own thing and it's like wait a minute aren't you supposed to be a little bit more dependent on me don't you realize what a catch <laughs> i am <laughs> again more of that self-flattery that uh that uh you know props him up and and really what is ultimately a, a pretty insecure and kind of neurotic situation that he's gotten himself into because he is he is being you know less than faithful to his wife uh, he is you know taking uh discreet time off the job and thinking again he's pretty slick like he's just oh this is my friend who happens to be this young attractive woman of course the women in his office and even his business partner <laughs> have a few chuckles as soon as that door closes behind him and uh they you know he and chloe go out for their little afternoon rendezvous like nobody's really uh, fooled by any of them yeah those are the moments where you really get something that um, you can't get from the stories because they are so first person. Um, you know, there, there's, there's those, those looks, the asides, the, the smiles after, uh, you know, somebody turns away. Um, the, those moments are, are so key to sort of understanding the larger universe of the film that, when you when you read, I, I reread the 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 story that Romare had written for this um, be, uh, before watching the movie, and uh, you you miss out on those moments, even though you kind of know that they're there in other ways. Um, I think just because they that his his narrators are so effusive in their attempts to try to convince themselves uh, that what they perceive of as happening is really happening you start to kind of doubt them just because of that. But um, yeah, it's nice to, it's nice to have that confirmed visually by the other people who are yeah. <laughs> in the movie. And, and there's such little subtle touches. I mean, there's enough that you see to kind of get the point, but he doesn't linger over it. It's just a quick little no, yeah. glance at each other and then cut away off to the next thing. 
Um, do we want to talk a little bit about Frederick and Helene's relationship? Uh, Frederick and his wife, uh, you know, she's a school teacher. Uh, they spend their nights, uh, you know, he's kind of reading his books. Again, that, just that little that little touch, you know, he's, his little literary escapes, whether he's taking the bus to work or sitting on the sofa while she's grading papers. This kind of a placid rut that they've kind of fallen into uh, of course there's the you know tending to the children and or the child and the the new one on the way there's those little niceties those little moments but uh do you feel like romero was trying to give a commentary on the, the inevitability of this kind of stage of of married life that that this is just kind of how it goes after familiarity and a routine have set in um or is, is he is is he critiquing it? Just being observational? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm not really sure if he's got a perspective. I really don't even know much about Eric Romer's personal life or his relationships or any of that type of thing. But uh, I'm just, what are your thoughts on the, the dynamics between uh, the married couple? Uh, even though Helen is a bit of a side character in in the drama here. Yeah, it's an interesting um, dynamic because. Uh, of the of the moral tales it's this this story is the most conventional i think you know we we've all seen the um the the movie about the the bored husband that is tired of his you know his his dumpy wife that is only cares about the baby right and uh he's tempted by the hot lady you know it would be like the glenn close in fatal attraction kind of situation <laughs> right um i mean that like this this is the only moral tale that could have been remade by chris rock as a, <laughs> as a hollywood movie right you know yeah I, mean? was a, I think um, i love my wife is that what that yeah, was yeah, yeah right okay um so uh, you know that you can definitely if you step back and look at, at the structure here it's a very conventional structure, but I don't really think that's what Romare is uh, tr- attempting to depict in their relationship. I mean, I think it, you know, we meet her kind of half naked as she's getting out of the tub. Yeah. Um, he goes over to give her kisses. She doesn't say like, you know, uh, oh, please, you're shave if you're going to do this so, right. to quote the mom in Boogie Nights. <laughs> Um, but, but, um, but like, you know, the, uh, she says, oh, you know, I'll get you wet. I mean, he's, he's essentially like still attracted to her. They still have a passionate relationship. Yeah. yeah she's not frumpy this, or anything of that no, sort. No, no. And I don't think this yeah. movie is about a bored husband that's mm-hmm. looking for something else. I think it's more, uh, sort of there, there's more ego at play than there is right. kind of, uh, you know, a sense of, of, um, wandering eye um and i think part of that a part of the ego that's at play is the sense that he doesn't really have any way to test that he's still got it you know that um, because he <laughs> yeah. ultimately does not want to cheat on his wife right um so he he can constructs these little fantasies that allow him to sort of think of himself as this um you know big man that can can uh bed whoever he wants mm-hmm. um and i think ultimately uh, his inability to sort of convey any of that to his wife or to convey any of his thoughts at all to his wife is really what the movie is about. Like that they're, they're not able to communicate their sort of even really like their moral standing. And so therefore it's really difficult for him to, uh, express himself. And he becomes, you know, obsessed with this interiority of like, just seeing other women as being uh, satisfying his needs when then, you know, the need that he really has is just to sort of be acknowledged uh, in his uh, feelings. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can presume that perhaps he got married fairly young, perhaps at a point in life where he was maybe more insecure or less established as a person, as a businessman, as a, as a, just as a, as a man. And so he married this woman because she accepted him and he was attracted to her and they got together and it was like, you know, gratifying on that level. But as he's come more into his maturity, it's like, 
I want even more. Why should I settle? Why should I say yeah. this is the this is it? This is the fulfillment. And and as I was watching this, and even as we've been talking, I thought about another Adnes Varda film, uh, Le Bon Air, which is an example oh, of yeah. a husband who says, "You know what?" And, and he actually does propose to his wife, "Hey, why not? Let's let's have the best of both worlds." You know, and of course, that ends in a complete catastrophic disaster but what do you think about those those parallels in in la bonaire the husband sort of acknowledges to his wife that he's attracted to this other woman and sort of says hey why not let's have even more happiness <laughs> even more pleasure than uh, the life that we already have together i mean it's 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 rather delusional but it's another example <laughs> of this kind of masculine ego that says why not have it all, you know? And, and right. why yeah. would anybody want to deny me this this pleasure, <laughs> this privilege? It doesn't really cost them anything, right? <laughs> I mean, the difference is that that uh, the the man in Le Bonheur is a sociopath. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, just like because, because he's sort of let himself go to that next level of. Well, of, I don't yeah, think yeah. The, I think part of the point of this movie is that Frederick would never do that. You know, yeah, and he right. gets as close as he as he can, and you know, I think there's obviously like a lot of reasons why uh, there's there's a lot of reasons why I don't cheat on my wife, but there's sure. a lot of reasons why men in general and women in general don't cheat on their spouses, mm -hmm. um, and I so I think you know there's a lot at play here for him, but I think ultimately he just has a you know to like it's a moral tale. He has a strict moral belief that doing this would be wrong. Yeah. And I think that is going through this process is what allows him to try to open up to his wife and, uh, you know, ultimately take that sort of final step into intimacy. Yeah. Um, because I think that that was ultimately what he was missing here. Um, and I mean, I, I think it's extremely relatable. You know, I saw this film, for the second time uh, a couple of years ago, as I was watching through Romare's films, I revisited it. And in comparison to when I watched it, when I was, you know, 26, I was married. I didn't have a kid. Right. Um, uh, now I have two kids. I'm living in the suburbs. You know, uh, I, I, the situation I feels I a lot more familiar on the right. train, but right. I watch movies, uh, <laughs> you know, wherever I can. <laughs> Exactly, so, yeah. you know, it, it was very, it's a very relatable feeling, even if I'm not, you know, uh, looking for or having the wandering eye right. or having a, a woman, you know, intimate relationship with a woman that isn't sexual, even if I'm not doing it in this specific way, the, hmm. the sort of itch that he's trying to scratch here that doesn't, you know, the phantom itch, um, is a is a thing that I think anybody can identify with uh, who finds themselves on the on the sort of uh, conventional track to adulthood. Yeah. Um, you know, at a certain point, you look at yourself and you say, "Well, what is it that I uh, that I'm getting out of this, and what did I think I wanted out of it, mm -hmm. and where is that gap, and how right. how can I fill that gap?" And what have I given up in order for the sake of yeah. stability and predictability and just, right. you know, keeping it together? Because if I was to stray too far off the path, then everything would just, you know, blow the smithereens and I'd have to start all over again. And who really wants to do that when you're 40, 50 or whatever the case may be? Um, so, yeah. And, and, and then the, the affection for the person, you know, and I think that's that's another really interesting dynamic as Chloe is like, you just pretend you love her because you live with her and I could never settle for that. So she is, she is presenting this pretty radical alternative of saying, you know, be true to your feelings. Don't just settle for convention. And I think, again, that's, that's a, a pretty potent uh, sort of dialectic that's going on there because that is a, that is a distinctive way of life that a person could choose to live, but it would be at a pretty significant cost uh, to the relationship with this woman that you've built a life with, to the children that you have already, you know, given birth to, and another one on the way, and and those are not inconsequential decisions, you know, but but again, Chloe is this 
very, you know, um, what's the word? I She's a significant autonomous person who is presenting this very, you know, legitimate possibility, this alternative that uh, Frederick, a certain aspect of him at least, finds attractive and sort of wants to sort of stay and stay in uh, connection with for at least a period of time until that moment of decision kind of ultimate which way are you going to go he hits the fork in the road and that's where we get to the conclusion of the film at least for the the sake of this narrative (laughs) the thing is you know this character you you really can't guarantee that his eye won't stray from this point (laughs) forward you know there's there's something in his nature that i think may still continue to present some some complications as he goes even further into his maturity but it is it's a and 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 i think that's again just another kind of dialogue that's going on that members of the audience in 1972 and uh, in all the decades ever since can say you know what that's still that's still a live uh, a live debate that that is presenting itself to anybody who's in in frederick's situation and you know and, and as for chloe she's got her own destiny to work out because uh, she she has sort of embarked on this path of short-term relationships that have their own risks and hazards and uh you know uh, you know the first time you see the concluding scenes of this film i'm, I'm talking about the encounter the final uh, con- you know encounter we see between frederick and chloe it is pretty stunning. I mean, what was your reaction when you first kind of saw where they got to that very, that right on the precipice there? And it seems like everything's set up for Frederick and Chloe to have their encounter, to consummate this flirtation that's been going on for presumably months. And then uh, he gets that glimpse of himself in the mirror with the, <laughs> with the yeah. shirt pulled up around his head and says, that's it, I can go no further. But I, that was a very stunning powerful moment uh in a film that's you know for all of its pleasures and and uh accomplishments has been it's felt pretty low-key and more of a object of intellectual fascination but when it gets to that moment that that is like a gut punch and it was really i was pretty shook when i first watched it. it's like wow that was that was pretty unique moment uh in, in the film it's probably the most notable change uh, from the story to the film um, is that that is in, in the film is a callback to a moment where he's um, sort of playing or being playful with his, um, with his child. He puts the, yeah. the, the sweater over the turtleneck over his head and pretends like he's, uh, you know, being a monster or something. Right. Um, and so I think it has the same impact that it does in the story because it, that moment happens in the story where he just, except in the story, it's kind of like he, he realizes that he looks ridiculous as uh-huh. opposed to in the film. I think there's more of a, uh, and it might be, I think, seen as, as kind of a, a Hollywood uh, technique um, to have that that moment recall this you know very mm-hmm. domestic and um, and uh, sort of casual moment with his family um, but it, it works incredibly well and I mean there's a reason they do that in Hollywood it's yeah uh, it's <laughs> yeah and, and, and it's I a think, relatable moment exactly yeah. yeah and the first time I, I agree I mean the first time I watched the that scene it, it's a really powerful moment and I think it's immediately understandable and relatable. I think the second time I watched it, I was just so sad for Chloe. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like to, to imagine going through that, to have that kind of a relationship and connection with somebody and to put yourself out there like that. Mm-hmm. And he just leaves and, yeah. and you know, she, she has no idea that, that he's gone. Um, right. It's, it's a pretty he, much a cowardly slip out the back, Jack, you know, as Paul it, Simon it very once much saying. is. Yeah. 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 You know, but there is a moment several minutes or whatever earlier in the film where Chloe talks about how she 
went to some kind of a social event with a guy and dumped him and left with a marvelous 19 year old man. So, you know, she's been on the other side of this as well. And she's, you know, she's inflicted similar types of pain on other men. So that's kind of a part of her lot. And again, I'm not, not to say that to to shame her or say, Oh, she, she gets what she does. No. And also we assume that, right? Right. Because we don't see it. Yeah. We don't know necessarily how much of what she's telling us is true or, or not true exactly yeah she she is you know she is spinning her own tales and she's you know she's got her own narrative and she's got her own self-justifying you know self-talk uh that that uh sometimes you know she's sharing out loud but you figure there's a whole nother dialogue that's going on inside of her as she kind of navigates the the various you know <laughs> pitfalls and ups and downs of her own life so yeah yeah um there are some other moments that are pretty exquisite i i think you know, we've talked a little bit about his sort of fantasies and the amulet moment but what did you think about sort of the the class reunion of all the previous uh females of uh you know of, of note in in the in the five installments uh, in the series i mean that again was a very magical little sequence and a, a very very unusual it's like a dream sequence, uh, which doesn't really happen much in these types of movies. They're very reality based, but this was Romare's uh, flight of fancy, you could say. Yeah, there's kind of like a Truffaut vibe to it. I feel like mm-hmm. um, it's very playful uh, and silly, and a little bit misogynistic, which yeah. pretty sums up <laughs> a lot of Truffaut. <laughs> but I think that yeah. you know the, um, the the thing that strikes me about bringing those characters back is that we know so much about them. And I mean, maybe they're not their characters, maybe they're just the actresses, but we've, we've spent time in their interiority and their emotions in their, in their memories. And so it, it just sort of doubles down on the absurdity and the, uh, and the, uh, ridiculous misguided nature of the objectification that he is attempting to accomplish in, yeah. in, in this sequence. Um, so it, it sort of allows it to play double duty in that, in that way, because you are linking the previous films, but you're also bringing the richness of those previous films to the, uh, to the sequence in a, in a really powerful way, I think. Yeah. And it's, and it is, it's, it is truly delightful just to see these women, some of whom have aged a few years, uh, since the films where they were featured and particularly the older ones in the set. Uh, but you know, Hey, I could never get enough of watching Francois Fabian. So it was nice to see her in her little, uh, fur hat and all of that. <laughs> yeah, but, but well, it, one of the great yeah. things about Romare's career is watching Beatrice Romand age. I mean, yeah, it's just extraordinary to see. Yeah, her well, you know what? I have I have not really ventured outside of this box set. I do have that nice Arrow set of Romare oh, films, yeah. so I'm going to probably have to tomorrow. find a way to. Yes, huh? yeah. tomorrow. Get on that. That's hey, why not? I mean, yeah, I mean, my my appetite has definitely uh, <laughs> been been stirred for. Uh, further exploration, especially some of the things that you've said and, and watching Romare, who, you know, again, he was what, around 50 years old when, when these films were made, these like, you know, I think he was born in 1920. So you think of him as a new wave yeah. nouvelle vague filmmaker, but he definitely was on the older side of it uh, and was already at a stage of life that, uh, you know, even, you know, curmudgeons like godard still had another couple decades before they right. got to he that was level. the mentor to the yeah. kaye crowd right um, and so yeah he he got started extremely late in mm-hmm. in life uh, making yeah. films even though he's contemporaneous with all of these guys right and adnes varda for that matter as well so um yeah yeah a lot going on here but i i, I do and i and i am intrigued to see more of romare's work because i think he is making these films uh, based and grounded in an era where, you know, the male gaze and male privilege was already kind of uh, an unquestioned norm. You know, that's the thing. We, we see misogyny and we see kind of a condescending uh, dismissal or manipulation of the women in these films. And it's there. There's no denying it. But I don't know that it necessarily jumped off the screen or yeah you know was male certainly something like, like having attractive secretaries yeah 
probably yeah. didn't uh, have anybody blinking an eye. Right. It was the boss's privilege to put give a little pat on the butt or a little, you know, wink right. or or you know, you know, give me another coffee, sweetheart, you know, type of a thing. And 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 even the women sort of accepted that that's just how you that's how you go about keeping your job and keeping the boss happy. So this is a you know, this is transitioning from an era where women's voices were beginning to get taken seriously, but you sort of see in Chloe's, um, you know, kind of the, the 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 ordeal that she has to go through. That you know, it's still not really being considered or or respected in the way that maybe even a few years later, um, some of these assumptions would have been rethought just a little bit, and uh, we could get a little bit more in the direction of some equity and and. Uh, mutual respect across the gender roles there. I mean, I, I think this movie ultimately is a movie about a guy who realizes that his wife is a person. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, and and that's the, the sort of the reconciling moment at the end there. I've, I've seen reviews where this film gets criticized for kind of upholding kind of the old uh, conventional morality or even the patriarchy. I, I'm not sure I would go there. Um, and, and, and I think that might come from a, a bias that says, let's, let's give Chloe more agency. Let's, let's kind of embrace and endorse the perspective that she brings. And yet she gets dumped in the end, so to speak. And, uh, the husband comes running home tearfully repentant towards his wife who may, or may not have had her own little side thing going on, which is another kind of, you know, it's a little ambiguous element there. Why is Helene so emotional when her husband comes home earlier in the afternoon than expected? Was there something going on? Was her plan to go out to meet somebody thwarted because he showed up? Uh, oh, wow. Know? Yeah. I, I mean, not considered that. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of there and, and there's, you know, again, it's, it's, it's a reasonable speculation. I mean, uh, Chloe says that she saw Helen walking around town with another man. Now, again, was that a truthful report or was she just kind of jerking uh, Frederick's right. chain a little bit? We don't really know, but there's enough ambiguity there to says, well, you know, maybe Frederick's not the only one who's been sidestepping just a little bit there. We don't know. I mean, because, you know, Helene certainly has her own reasons or justifications for feeling a little bit bored and neglected. I mean, look at what her, where her husband's, he's, he has been dallying around. He has been emotionally checked out. She's a woman. She's got needs. She, you know, she's an attractive woman who certainly could get attention if she wanted to make herself available that way. So, uh, in a very subtle way, Romer is saying, no, this, this does work both ways. I, I, had wondered if she had postpartum depression. That's honestly. another possibility as well. You know, right, right. I mean, it, it, and the, the final scene is, is kind of a mixed, mixed blessing. <laughs> I don't know how to say what I'm <laughs> yeah. saying, but like he's, he's recognizing in her, her humanity, I think, but he also like rushed home to have sex with her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And Cause he he's, doesn't, he's, he doesn't he's, let her collapsing in a pool of tears get in the way of him unzipping the back of her dress and right, moving her right. into the Yeah, he, he's definitely been very worked up by this little encounter yeah. with Chloe, and he's got to find a release somewhere. So there is a little bit of, of a, like, okay, well, you did the right thing, and it does seem like you've turned a corner in your right. relationship with her, but also still... Eh. Yeah, yeah, a little breakup to makeup type of thing yeah. going on there. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're we've pretty much done a nice job covering this. Uh, Matthew, anything else you want to say about the film before we kind of wind down the conversation? The the only other thing I want to touch on, which I touch on with all Romare films, is the clothes. Uh, they're <laughs> yes. extraordinary here. Um, they're really great. And and uh, you know, in in this film, like in Claire's Knee, there is a uh, a sort of plot thread that mm-hmm. that connects to the clothes no yeah. pun intended i guess with plot thread <laughs> but the uh the the shirt that he buys yeah which is such a great scene it's so great it's I sort of an it. early establishing scene of his character although it very seems much. very much like what is this all about you know he gets persuaded to buying this this shirt that he had no interest in he wasn't looking for this type of shirt but uh and and he yeah. literally owns no other shirts this guy <laughs> 
<laughs> every right. single every single other thing that he wears is a turtleneck yeah. or a sweater of some kind yeah, with a little and, laser over the but, top but right. the shirt keeps coming back and in particular <laughs> when he's with chloe yep. he's wearing the shirt and i think you know that that's another aspect of of rich a richness that you don't get from the story because you can't see what he's wearing in later scenes but the way they use the shirt in this movie is really great yeah and i think you know just yeah really speaks to his kind of uh ego stroking that is necessary for him in terms of the way that he sees himself and uh in particular how he defines himself through the way women see him Um, yeah yeah yeah, he's but not Chloe's really a, clothes he, are also the best. Oh, Chloe. I mean, yeah. well, let's let's talk about Zuzu a little bit. She apparently, I, I guess, was a pretty prominent French model. I didn't really know a whole lot about her. And, you know, she, she's got an interesting look to herself. She's not, you know, the most traditionally, conventionally beautiful woman yeah. in the film or in these series. But she certainly has charisma. She has oh, magnetism. Yeah. She has a presence that uh, is 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 pretty undeniable, and and certainly comes through the screen pretty powerfully. Um, do you know much about her? I guess she was she actually had a relationship with Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones. I, I found that on her Wikipedia page, and uh, just kind of wondering if you have any more insight as to the significance uh, i mean she's a kind of a th- i mean just the her name as a throwback to the old days of like arletti and the other french actors who went by a single name you know um but yeah just kind of an intriguing character that i think i probably would benefit to study up a little bit more and, and know more about her just wonder if you had any thoughts about either her role as a french kind of you know fashion figure uh or even her just her performance here my whole uh, experience with Romare is encountering incredible female actresses uh, in his movies that give like once in a lifetime performances. Yeah. Yeah. And then I go on Wikipedia to learn about what else they did. And I realize it was a once in a lifetime performance because it's the only movie that they were ever in. <laughs> yeah. Other than bit parts perhaps, yeah. but just, but he sort of captures their essence in some really, it's uh, incredible really incredible. Way. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, and, and the, his, his ability to do it over and over again, over decades and decades, is just a uh, really extraordinary, but I think her performance here is really wonderful um you know the the sort of her her gender ambiguity um and uh her body uh language is just so um it's both like very um aggressive and at the same time complicated in its uh relation to how she's interacting with him and what she's saying yeah um you know the scenes where she's just kind of like slouched all the way down in the chair right with that big where she's got her legs spread spread. yeah yeah a man spread type of thing yeah yeah. it's it's very casual on the one hand but seems very deliberate very intentional and very measured at the same time you know it's like so you you can tell she's a, a practiced experienced model who knows her body knows how to present yeah. a lot of different effects and she can glam up really nice she can be sexy she can be sophisticated she can be funky bohemian she, she's got the whole range there yeah yeah she does seem to like be almost like trying on different looks to see what's going to get this guy mm-hmm. to take it to the next level yeah um, and, and and it's and it's just part of her her person i mean she's she is like kind of showing the full spectrum of of what it means to be a, a young, independent, uh, self uh, determined woman uh, at this time in, in French society. So, yeah, pretty impressive. All right. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up this episode. Matthew, thank you again. This has been a really rewarding conversation. You've definitely given me some great insights and hopefully listeners have picked up some good nuggets from the conversation. 
as uh, we've kind of wrapped up this impressive box set, uh, our second straight film talking about lives of the French bourgeois <laughs> uh, subset there. One, uh, one from a hard left communist, one from a hard right mon- monarchist. So, <laughs> Yes, fascinating. Well, our next episode is going to be the conclusion of another pretty impressive Criterion Collection box set. We're going to talk about Bob Raffleson's uh, The King of Marvin Gardens, which is part of that America lost and found the bbs story uh i think that's the sixth feature film in that magnificent box set uh, another one of those crowning achievements that criterions put out every so often over the years so uh we getting that one out hopefully it's been a little bit sooner i've been a little less uh, prolific here on this feed but i have been recording podcasts there's just a few that are in the can waiting their uh launch out in there into society so so matthew you're gonna go ahead and get us a second episode of the complete agnes varda pretty soon yes it should be out uh you know any any week now um we're 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 trying to stick to a monthly schedule this time okay uh, so pace things and and not uh, get too too hectic with it Uh, but yeah but we're really you know enjoying it and yeah yeah we we are hitting cleo five to seven with her second film so yeah it kind of ramps up really quickly. Unlike our, our previous uh, filmmakers, she, she hit the, the big time. She hit the, she made the 14th best movie ever made uh, <laughs> uh, in her second time out. So. Excellent. All right. Well, it's been great connecting with you again. So thank you again, listeners for tuning in and uh, look for us as we uh, keep the series moving forward. Uh, great talking to you and uh, we'll be back soon. Thanks Bye-bye. for having me. All right. Thanks, man.